So last week we we entered into the uh, the third chapter of the book of Philippians. Man, as we open it up, Paul is you know continuing to to hound in on some of the themes that he has there in the book of Philippians, and then he wrote to them and he said, "Man, there are people that are trying to add to the gospel. There are people that are trying to add to the things that that you need to do to stay apart." of this body of believers, to stay, you know, a true Christian or a better Christian. And broadly, he categorized those three groups of people as what? He said that they are dogs, they are evildoers, and they are mutilators. And he said, man, don't, don't listen to what these people are trying to tell you. They're trying to add things on top of the gospel. They're trying to tell you that you need to do some additional thing to be righteous before God. And so he offers a, a course corrective. He's like, just, just don't do that. Don't do these things. What's interesting then is we come into the, to the fourth verse where Paul goes on and he talks about all the things that he has done. In a sense, what we see today is that Paul says, man, these guys tell you to do these things? Look at all the stuff that I have done. You see, the choice before us today is one of rubbish and righteousness. There are certain things we do, there are certain things we pursue that Paul categorically refers to as, as rubbish, as unspeakable filth. And man, then there's things that God does, and he declares those things as complete and utter righteousness. Let me read for us. We're going to be working in the third chapter of the book of Philippians, verses 4 through 11 today. Paul writes, he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, he's talking about these, these people that wrote them and that had confidence in the flesh. He goes on, he says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, man, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, psh, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Man, we have a sizable piece of text in front of us today. And so just like last week, I'm going to try and speak fast and you listen quick and we'll make our way through it, okay? Okay? All right. Man. It was the, you know, the part of that was me speaking quick, part of that was you guys listening quick or fast or whatever, and you guys just sat there like, what did he say? <laughs> Man, I think you asked me something. Hey, honey, what did he say? Is he calling for a response? Is it, is it time to walk the aisle yet? All right. It's not time for that yet. Verse 3, he has this deal. He says, put no confidence in the flesh. He's telling them, he's setting up for them what they, what they shouldn't do. So it's in some ways strange, as I said, that he goes about and he puts in these verses, verses 4 through 6, where he essentially says, look, don't do this, but this is, I can do this. I can do this. 
But it's interesting as he does that. See, in verse 4, when he, when he wrote, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, essentially he says, these guys over here, they think they've got it nailed. These guys over here, they think they've got it figured out, exactly what you have to do to garner the favor of God. But man, if they're onto something, if, if, if they're little bitty things that they're telling you guys to do, look what I've done, look what I've done, look what Paul has done. He writes and he says, the first thing he says, he lists seven characteristics. Some of these he got from birth, some of these he did on his own. He lists seven characteristics, though. And the first one he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. See, Paul's making a reference back to the law in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 12. Moses writes, he says, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Paul writes and he says, hey, look, these people are telling you to do this. They're speaking to a group of adults, right? They're not speaking to newborns. That, that makes no sense. I don't know how many of you tried to speak to a newborn and be like, hey, you need to go out and do this for yourself. And the newborn's like, blah. Apparently you didn't understand me. You need to go do this. And they say, blah. You know, it's nonsense that he would be speaking to a group of newborns. But instead, he is speaking to a group of adults. And he said, you see, these people are telling you to go out and be circumcised. But, man, check this out. I'm not a recent convert. You see, I was circumcised on the eighth day. These people are telling you to do something as adults? Man, I had this done to me long before these people even conceived of making additions. These people are telling you to do something that I so far surpass in who I am. He goes on, he says, of the people of Israel. Paul's continuing to drive in the fact that, look, I'm not Johnny come lately to this party. I'm not a recent convert. I didn't look, you know, and read and do a comparative religious study. But, man, I was born into this. All the rights and privileges associated with being a person of Israel aren't mine because I said, let me, let me do these things. This looks even better. Man, if I could add these things on top of it, it would just take me to the next level. See, Paul writes them and says, all these things are already true. For me. See, Paul writes and he says, I am of the people of Israel from birth. From birth. Not that he decided to later, but that he's already that from birth. Man, Paul is beating down their argument. He says, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, this is interesting. See, Paul's not just writing and saying, look, I'm some, you know, way back when, you know, my, my grandmother decided that she would marry into this family, and man, that's been great for me because, you know, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. And he says, check this out, that my family goes back to Benjamin. Benjamin, the only one of the 12 sons of Israel to be born in the promised land. Benjamin, from whom the first king over Israel was from. King Saul, who's the first king over all of Israel, whom Paul, or Saul is his Hebrew name, is named after. Man, do you continue to understand and see the, the superiority that Paul has over these group of people that seem to want to add on? You know, they figured out a niche or a secret to be the next level believer. And Paul says, man, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, check this out. My namesake, first king. What tribe? What up? Promised land born, Benjamin. Can you top that? I don't think so. And so he's building into this. And then Paul says, man, I am a Hebrew 
of Hebrews. Paul says, My, I'm a purebred. I'm absolutely a purebred Hebrew. You see, at the time of Paul's writing, there's a group of people that are, that are Jews by heritage, right? It's kind of like some of us, if we look at our backgrounds, I've recently found out, if my grandfather did some research, I have Swedish blood, y'all. I have some Swedish blood. That's, I didn't even know. I didn't even know. My grandfather wrote me. He said, look, I'd like to do a monument. Would you give some money to this? I'm like, I didn't even know that guy. No, I'm not giving money for that. But he says, he says, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. You see, there were people at that time that, that were Hebrews because their parents, you know, they dated back to one of the 12 tribes, but they had so far bought into their culture that they're referred to as being Hellenized. They'd allowed Greek culture and influences to so far push them and guide them and change them that they probably didn't even speak the language. They didn't even speak Hebrew. They didn't speak Aramaic. They only spoke Greek. They thought as Greeks. There was really no part of them that was really Hebrew. They were Hellenized. Paul says, check this out, man. I'm the real deal. I'm actually a Hebrew of Hebrews. You see, when we think about this, I, I have a hard time really understanding the importance of this. Man, I'm a, a, a mutt of mutts. As I told you, I didn't even know I had Swedish ancestry until my grandfather wrote and asked me for money to erect a monument to, uh, to memorialize that. But, but my wife is a, is a Texan of Texans. Right? That's a big deal to y'all. I'm from Louisiana, and so I don't, I don't tell many people that. Inferiority complex with my state. Texas bigger is better. But a Valerie's family is a Texan of Texans. See, her family, and I, I don't know about this, I didn't take Texas history, but her family, I didn't realize the significance of this. Her family goes back to uh, Washington on the Brazos. You guys are like, what? You see, Belleville, Texas, was part of a land grant that her family gave, her family to the Bell family. And Stephen F. Austin signed off on their land. Man, my family was so poor that, you know, we came over from Sweden, we didn't even write it down, apparently. <laughs> my grandfather had to do some research and figure that one out. <clears throat> you know, Bjorn from Switzerland's over there. Why don't they remember me? But Paul is a Hebrew of Hebrews. You see, he's not this person that, that added on these things later to, to make himself right before God, but he was born into this, this understanding. Check this out. Paul then lists three things. He said, this is my heritage. Now look at the things that I did. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee. You see, at the time of this writing, Paul was a Pharisee. Paul was a part of the most strict understanding of what it is to obey the Jewish law. So it's not that like he says, you know, as to the law, man, I kept the Decalogue. I kept the Ten Commandments. Absolutely, I kept the Ten Commandments. But Paul and the group of people that he was a part of, they added on top of the law. They added an oral interpretation of the law. And they didn't just keep the law, but they kept this interpretation of the law. One example of this is you'll remember that in the Old Testament, you're not supposed to work on the what? On the Sabbath, right? You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees see that and say, absolutely, we don't work on the Sabbath. But you know what I've noticed? That whenever I spit the dirt, it just kind of lays open like that. Man, that looks a lot like plowing. 
You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to farm on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to plow on the Sabbath. Whenever I spit, the dirt splits in half. It looks like I'm turning over the dirt. No spitting on the Sabbath. You see, Paul is a part of this group of people that so desperately wanted to keep the Word of God, that so desperately wanted to maintain covenant faithfulness and be in this relationship with God, that they abided not by just the basic law, but they abided by all these other things that were added on top of it. Paul says, as to the law, a Pharisee. He says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now, i got to be honest, this one confused me to a certain degree, but you see, in Paul's early understanding of what it is to be a follower of God, when he saw the Christian church rising up, he thought these people were part of a cult. He thought these people had a false understanding of God. And so being zealous for God, he persecuted the church. We can read over in, in the book of Acts, Acts 7.58, the first time we hear of Paul, his name is Saul, it says, Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, speaking of Stephen. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. You see, Stephen, one of the early members of the Christian church, preaches this amazing sermon. If you get some time this afternoon, I encourage you to go back and to read Acts 7. But Stephen unfolds salvation history. He unfolds the movement of God through time, showing how God has been at work bringing people to belief in his name. And at the end of that time, to thank him for his brilliant exegesis and exploration and exposition of Scripture, they stone him. And they put their garments at the feet of Paul. You see, we also see in there, Paul in the first three verses of chapter 8, it says, And Saul approved of, the, of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, so they cried over him. But check this out. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He was zealous in his persecution of the church. And then he adds this on top of it. And he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless blameless. You see, it's important that as we read this, we don't just say, as to righteousness, blameless, or that our understanding shifts to, as to righteousness, sinless. You see, but his understanding was this. As he lived his life in accordance with the law, as people saw Paul, as the other Pharisees engaged with Paul, they're like, oh, there he goes. There he goes. Man, that guy is blameless. Doesn't do anything wrong. Keep trying to add things to get him to do something wrong. You know, check this out. See if we can trick Paul. Paul, that's not, you know, that's not against that anymore. Paul's like, no, no. I'm blameless. You see, Paul was so rigid in his understanding and keeping with the law that he remained blameless as it turns to righteousness under the law. You see, for some of us, we could best understand Paul as being, you know, like this, this Baptist Baptist. There's no Methodist in his background. All his folks have been immersed three times. And on the third one, they held them underneath until bubbles came up. <laughs> Paul, you talk about tithing 10%. Paul's 10.5% off the gross. He's not thinking about net. Net, who are you? 
You see, Paul has this rich life tradition. He has this rich life tradition. And he has all of these things that he has done for him. But it all changes in an instant. It all changes in an instant. You see, somewhere, as Paul was leaving Jerusalem and he was, he was heading to Damascus to persecute the church more, to ravage the church more, something radically changed in Paul. In Acts 9, reading from verses 3 through 5, we read that now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he asked the question that many of us would ask, Who are you, Lord? And he responded, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You see, somewhere along this journey, when Paul was seeking to do the things that he understood that he should do, Jesus stepped in, and everything radically changed for Paul. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Continuing that thought, he says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You see, it's interesting to note that Paul didn't just go along and say that, man, I, I, I counted these things and that I didn't think about them anymore. That I thought about all the things that I was and all the things that I had done and I just said, man, those things are lost. Those things are are, are of little value to me anymore. But when we read carefully, we see in verse 7 that he counted it as lost for the sake of Christ. And in verse 8 that he continues to count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. You see, when we came to faith, when we come to understood Come to, when we came to understand, wow, tenses are difficult in English. When we came to understand who Jesus is, there are certain things in our life that we had to count as loss. And see, those things have a tendency of trying to creep back into our lives. Those things have a tendency of trying to, trying to come back into the main of our understanding of the way that we live our lives. But the word from Paul and his understanding and the model that he displays before us is that we continue to count those things as loss, which we have counted as loss. We continue to recognize those things as loss. Continuing on in verses 8 and 9, Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And then for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see, Paul likely lost the closeness of his family. You see, he lost all things. He considered the loss of all things to be rubbish. That he might gain Christ. You see, even even just saying rubbish... It paints this very sterile picture of what's going on. Because everybody around him saw him as an enemy, as a turncoat. Can you imagine being the early Benedict Arnold of the Jewish church? Everybody around him was so confused when he started worshiping, he started following the way, when he started following Jesus. And they turned on him because they felt that he had turned on them. And he writes, he says, all these things... 
and he characterizes them as rubbish. See, living in Fort Worth, uh, whenever we would, we had our big recycling can, we had a smaller regular trash can. And whenever I'd go to recycle something, even the milk jug, you know, take the milk jug, fill it up full of water, rinse it around, get some Dawn soap in there, clean it up really good, scrub the outside, take the cap off because the cap can't go in the recycling. That's got to go to a different trash. You know, pour it out, it's clean. I could drink from it, I could bathe from it. It's Brita pitcher filtered water. I mean, it's, it's perfect. And I'm going to throw it in my trash can. You know, we take cans of, of tomato sauce or, or corn, we take it, and we'd rinse out this inside of the can. The top had to go somewhere else, but the can could go in the recycling. Apparently, Fort Worth's not big on recycling. The tops of things. Or even the trash in my house that was completely filthy. You know, they sell these scented trash can liners. And so, like, my, my trash needs to smell better, right? It feels bad about itself. It needs to smell better. You know, I'm rotten chicken, but I smell good on the inside. And so we put these things in our white and black trash bags and we'd pull them out so our hands wouldn't get dirty and we'd carry them to the, to the can. And we'd set them outside the curb so that the trash guy, as he came by to pick it up, he too would be able to do and, and have a, you know, clean hands with his job. That's what I'm most concerned about, that the guy picking up my trash can pick up his sandwich after he picks up my trash and take and eat and see that it is good. You see, but that's not what Paul is getting at. He's not talking about this serene, sanitized food that has been, you know, placed in containers and neatly bundled so that somebody can throw it away and put it in a landfill. Have you ever been to the Texas State Fair? You see, at the Texas State Fair, they have this thing that is kind of this convection oven of filth, this, this place that you go only in the most dire emergencies. I mean, nobody wants to be found in this place. Nobody seeks it out. We all know it's there, and we walk past it and think, please, God, don't make me have to go in there. It's a porta potty. You guys are surprised. What did you think I was talking about? And everybody knows what's at the bottom of that thing. And that's one of the reasons we don't want to go in there. Human elimination. Human waste. See, friends, when Paul talks about all the things that he's lost, and Paul talks about all the things that he forfeited, he's not talking about pristine, clean trash. He's talking about human excrement. You see, when you think about all the things that we lose to come to Christ, when you think about all the things that Paul describes, he doesn't come to Christ until he recognizes those things as being so vile, so repugnant, so disgusting. It's the type of filth and the type of trash that takes your breath away when you think about it too long. And that's what he considered them to be. Although he lost them, When he reflected upon them, he considered them to be rubbish, unspeakable filth. If you have a King James Version, it it defines it as dung. You see, going on in this thought, recognizing that all he was born into and all that he had, had done was unspeakable filth, Paul also saw that he might have a righteousness not from his own, but from Christ. Paul had moved from having his own righteousness from the law to that of Christ. You see, for, for the for surpassing worth of knowing Christ, he forsook all those things and considered them to be rubbish. But then when he looked at it, and Paul had previously written to us and had said that, you know, that he was, as for righteousness under the law, blameless. 
But here now he is recognizing that he is blameworthy. Here now he is recognizing his fallenness. Here now he is recognizing the filth that is in his life. And what does he do? I want to lose all so that I could gain Christ and be found in him. You see, somewhere along the road to Damascus, Paul, prior to that date, had in his mind a a gains column and a losses column. And in the gain column, it read something like this, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, Pharisee, right? And so he continued to put these things in his gain column. And in his loss column, those things which were against Paul, he had a big zero. He had nothing in that column. But somewhere along that road, Paul switched the headings on each one of those. And all the things that were gained for him became lost. And the only thing that could be gained for him became Christ. And although the one side only had one thing, it far outweighed everything else. Indeed, it forced all those other things to be referred to as unspeakable filth. And Paul recognized, he realized that he had been persecuting Christ, the one person who could, in fact, make him righteous. Paul, Paul writes and he says, not a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, the law which before Paul had referred to as making himself blameless, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see, our righteousness, our right standing, our holiness before God doesn't depend upon anything that, that I can do. And so it's a good thing. Because I fail every day. You see, it doesn't depend on you, and maybe you're even much better than I am. And you're able to, to maintain a, you know, a pure thought life, and you're able to you know, really help out a lot of people, and you do a lot of really meritorious things. You do a lot of really good things. doesn't matter. It just absolutely doesn't matter. You see, the only righteousness that matters is that which comes from God through Christ. You see, the fact is that Christ, who came and he lived a perfect and sinless life. See, he came and he faced all the things that you and I face. He faced all the trials and temptations that you and I face. And it didn't distract him. It didn't knock him off course. And there at the end of his life, he was put to death. You see, he died the death that you and I should have to die. He died in our place, taking on all the punishment for sins, the sins that that I have committed and the sins that I will commit. For what purpose? So that he might bring us to God. You see, he's put to death, but it's not just that. He's put to death, but also that God raises him from the dead. And in doing that, he defeats both sin and death. And what Paul realized is what the law was incapable of doing, Christ did in an instant. That Christ transferred Paul from a life of punishment to a life of reward. That he translated him from a life of an inability to overcome sin to being able to overcome sin. You see, those of us who know Jesus, who have been saved by him, have overcome sin, not in the things that we are able to do, not in the things we're able to say, not even in the money that we're able to give, but because Christ came, he lived a perfectly sinless life. He died and was raised again on the third day. 
And he sits at the right hand of the Father. And he beckons all to come. All to come and to receive forgiveness of sins. Going on, Paul moves to continue this discussion of the benefits of knowing Christ in verse 10. He says, That I may know him in the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Hmm. You see, Paul writes and he talks about knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. See, Paul's not primarily just making a reference to what it is to know God and be resurrected at the end of the days. But he's making a reference to what it is to live this life with the power of the resurrection at work inside us daily. Writing in the sixth chapter of the book of Romans in the fourth verse, Paul writes that we are buried therefore with him by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. See, Paul's not talking about just the fact that he made this decision, man, he is saved by the skin of his teeth, and he just gets to continue on and do all the things that he wants to do. Paul's talking about living this life, living the powerful, resurrected life, and living this life in accordance with the power that we have through Christ, inasmuch as we name him as Savior and Lord. Do you catch the weight of that? Do you catch the significance of that? Paul's not talking about the things he's done, but he is talking about the things that Christ has done, that God has done. Carrying on, he says, that I might share in his sufferings. Hmm. That I might share in his sufferings. Do you remember when Paul wrote to the uh, Philippians? A couple of months ago, we were in in the first chapter, in the 29th verse, and he wrote them and he said, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in him, which they're really excited about. Man, they're excited to believe in him but also that you might suffer for his name. You see, to live a life as a Christian isn't living a life getting to do all the things that Matt wants to do. It's not living a life getting to do all the things that we so desperately want to do. But it's living a life identifying with his sufferings, taking on his sufferings. You see, after Paul meets Christ on the road to Damascus, he is blinded and he is led by the hand into town. And there's a man named Ananias that comes to visit him. And God speaking to Ananias says, Look, I want you to go. I want you to to help Paul so that he can see again. And I want you to understand the significance of this man that I blinded on this road who formerly persecuted me, but now proclaim my message boldly. You see, in Acts 9, 15 and 16, Speaking of Paul, God said that he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. He's going to take the message of God to those both esteemed highly and lowly, to those both in the covenant relationship with God according to the Old Testament and to those who are otherwise described as as dogs. In verse 16, For I will show him how much He must suffer for the sake of my name. And if you ever have any doubt at just how much Paul suffered for the name of Christ, maybe this afternoon take a chance and read 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 
Paul talks about the ways that God allowed him to suffer. And you see, he doesn't get to the end of that list and say, and you know what, it really wasn't worth it. Really, after that first shipwreck, I started thinking, this was a mistake. Really, after the second time I got beat with rods, I started thinking, this is a price too high. Really, after about the third time I went hungry for a couple of days, I started thinking, what I wouldn't give for a big slab of bacon. You see, Paul didn't consider those things in this gain-loss column because the only thing that Paul desired to gain was Christ, the thing that he couldn't gain in and of himself, the thing that only God could give him. And that he might become like him in his death, taking on the identity of Christ. You see, Paul's not talking about martyrdom. He's not talking about, you know, just living this life to the point where he dies. See, it goes back to Philippians 1.21. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, every decision that he made was weighed against who he is in Christ. Everything he said was weighed against who he is in Christ. See, the question then is, when you and I consider the ways that we will talk, the ways that we will live, the ways we will spend money, the ways that we will associate with other people, are we doing so out of what derives and brings us the most pleasure? Or are we doing so in our sharing with his sufferings and our becoming like him in his death? You see, becoming a Christian, being a Christian is a difficult thing because it is a life called to self-denial. It is a life called to elevating him and putting us way, way past second. Right? It's putting others first. And in verse 11, Paul finishes out and he says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, this might seem curious. Paul, who spoke boldly of having received the righteousness of God, here now in verse 11 says that any means possible... Is he again, you know, talking about some crazy type of hubris where he might be able to do something to inherit salvation? This is Paul showing and expressing complete and utter humility. This is Paul expressing and showing and modeling to others. Man, see, it's nothing that, that Paul has done. It's nothing that you and I can do to inherit salvation. And so when he looks at it with great humility, he says, that I might be able to have a share in the resurrection from the dead. See, the question before us today is, what are we pursuing? Are we pursuing our great identity as being a Texan? Are we pursuing our great identity as even being a a Baptist? Oh, he said Baptist. You mean Southern Baptist, right? Yeah, absolutely. You see, are you pursuing your identity as being a great father and a great employee? Man, I'm just loved by all my employees and coworkers. You see, because all those things, if that's ultimately what you're pursuing, all those things fall in the category of unspeakable filth. You see, as you think about salvation, we need to understand what we are pursuing. See, if we're pursuing self-justification, if we're pursuing some type and way of being right before God in and of our own merits, it's almost as if 
to think that we admired, that we had wallowed in this unspeakable filth, and the best thing we have to clean ourselves off with are dirty rags. And so the more we wipe and, and rub and smear, we're just continuing to rub filth and disgust onto us. You see, as we sit here in this room, there are those who are thinking about, man, if I could just get good enough for God to save me, if I could just get off enough of this filth, maybe God would love me, maybe God would, would save me. See, that's an impossibility. But man, there's great news that God sent His Son, even that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's no way you can get clean enough, good enough. There's no way that even in being blameless under the law, that God would step in and save you based upon the great things that you've done. You see, but some of us aren't like this group. We hold on to this sense of self-justification. And in some sense, we feel justified to carry on and even though we, we think loosely that Christ saved us at some point in the past, we say, yeah, but I wasn't really as bad as so-and-so. I wasn't really as bad as this person over here. And so we've held on to the things that we thought were good in our salvation. You see, Paul is certainly a person that would affirm that by every appearance, all the things that he'd ever done appeared to be good. I mean, great family, good grades, live in a good neighborhood. They probably have curbs and running water. You see, but at the end of the day, in comparison to the worth of knowing Christ, Paul was forced to refer to all those things and to think all those things as unspeakable filth. So the question is, what are you pursuing today? Because if you pursue anything other than the righteousness of God, which depends upon faith, you're pursuing rubbish. You're pursuing unspeakable filth. Let me pray for us.